0: Here we are this morning once again in the book of Jude, that very small book towards the end of your New Testament written by Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And so as we do each week, we ask you to open your Bibles and to have them open before you. It's a very helpful practice. We continue to to say it, not to trouble you or bother you, but just simply to remind you of... What a good practice it is as we study God's word together that we have it open before us, that we can read it uh, ourselves as we follow along in the sermon. Here is where we are in our study of the book of Jude. Jude, as you remember, uh, wanted to write a letter to this church. We don't know who it was, the church that is, but he describes them beautifully in the very beginning as uh, those who are called by God, who are. Kept in the love or in the love of God the Father and are kept for Jesus Christ. And so he has great affection, we know, as we read through the whole letter for this body of believers. And as he writes to them, intending initially to write a letter of encouragement to rejoice with them in this common salvation that they enjoy together, uh, he's immediately struck, led by the Spirit, as it were, to write to them a very different letter, And it's been for us a difficult letter perhaps for some of you and for some of us together to go through because so much of it is focused upon these false teachers. Jude says they crept in unawares, which means that they crept in without the people within the church knowing who they really were. And they came with ill design and intentions. They desired to lead the faithful away as if it were possible from the things of Christ They began to teach things that were contrary to God's word, his revelation. And so for Jude, it became an urgent matter to write this letter, to warn them. And he spends the whole first part of his letter, indeed, it's the bulk of the letter, unmasking these false teachers, telling them who these men really were. He describes them ultimately as ungodly, who are devoid of the Holy Spirit, they are enemies of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then beginning in verse 17, as we have been seeing in the most recent weeks, he turns to the readers themselves, the ones to whom he is writing, and he reminds them that they, if they are to contend for the faith, if that involves something on their part, it involves action. There's an, a call here to battle, that we must as believers be actively engaged he's really describing in verses 17 through 23, he's really describing what it means, what he means by contending for the faith. First, he says in 17 through 21, there's a need for preparation. Every, every officer, everyone who goes into war knows this. They know that when you enter battle, there's a time for great preparation on the part of those who will be fighting. And so individually and corporately, the church is to prepare themselves. Look at the language of these verses, especially in verse 20 through 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God and wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. These are ways in which these believers individually and corporately are to prepare themselves then in the verses before us this morning he calls us to engage in the battle itself this language is battle language it's entering into the danger of battle we'll talk about it in just a few moments and then in verses 24 and 25 the bible always does this as it calls us to places of danger to engaging the enemy it always reminds us of what god promises us to give us hope To comfort us in these times. So, we are now at the point of looking at the engagement section, engaging in the battle, and we are told to involve ourselves with the enemy and with those who have been seduced by their teachings and errors. As you listen to these brief verses, you can see clearly the danger that's involved. This is not for the faint of heart, not for the weak, certainly not for the faithless but for those who are strong in Christ and in the power of his might. We might say it reminds us of Ephesians 6, where Paul tells the Ephesian believers to put on the full armor of God so that we might be able to stand in the day of our trial, our testing, when we engage with the enemy, his fiery darts that he fires at us, etc. It's just a reminder of that scenario of the battle that Christians daily face. For when you are close to such errors as these false teachers were teaching, you are close indeed to Satan himself, because they are the instruments of our greatest enemy, and so he calls us to engage. Please stand as we hear God's word, as we read it together, and pray for God's blessing upon it. Beginning in verse 17, this whole section, 17 through 23, this is God's word. "'waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ "'that leads to eternal life. "'And have mercy on those who doubt. "'Save others by snatching them out of the fire. "'To others show mercy with fear, "'hating even the garment stained by the flesh. "'All flesh indeed as, is as the grass, "'and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. "'The grass withers, the flowers fade.' but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, we are so thankful that as you call us to battle, as you call us to engage, even the very forces of wickedness and false teaching, Lord, you comfort us with the knowledge that you are with us, that you will protect us, that you will ultimately keep us. And so cause us, Father, to hear these words, to engage in the battle to fight for those around us as you are calling us to love one another in this specific way. And we ask your blessing upon the word now, preached and received and heard. We pray that you would bless it to our hearing, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. For those of us who are of a certain age, the events of September 11th, 2001 and the many weeks afterwards will always be in our minds. We will never forget, and we must never forget. Enemies had crept in unnoticed in our nation, committed acts of terror that filled an entire nation with fear. As time went on, of course, as the days and the weeks and the months and the years passed, we heard the stories of God's providence displayed during that time. And many of you even know people who were supposed to be there in New York or in Washington, D.C., or perhaps even on the flights that were eventually used as weapons against this nation. We saw God's providence as people who were supposed to be there that day were providentially hindered in any number of ways. And we heard story after story, didn't we? And we remember them. They stuck with us of amazing, amazing courage in the face of danger. Stories told by survivors of those attacks and pieced together by messages to loved ones left by those who died. For me, personally, among the stories of courage, the ones that stood out to me the most were the ones of, those who's, who, of, of the rescue personnel at Ground Zero in New York City whose bravery was often summed up in this now familiar way. When everyone else was running away from the danger, these brave personnel were running into it. That image, that uh, picture, and literal pictures of what was happening that day have not left my mind, and I'm sure yours as well. They did on that last day of their lives what they had done every other day before When they were called to respond to the needs of those in danger, they ran to help and to serve, to save and to rescue. And those who serve in those callings today, of which many even still in our church have before or continue to serve in, day after day, they continue to show that same courage in the face of danger And I, and I know you are too, are very grateful for those who serve in this way in our country, in our community. It is an incredible calling, uh, but it is one that requires great courage. Now, this illustration, which all of us can relate to in one level, certainly, and those who live through those years can relate even more. This illustration is helpful for us as we move into these two verses that Jude here writes for us. They speak of a call to action for all believers engaged in the necessary task of contending for the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. We're not talking about physical things here, buildings and pentagons and fields in western Pennsylvania. We're talking about spiritual battle, the fight that rages every day for the souls of men and women and children In the previous two verses, we saw the language of preparing ourselves again for battle, both individually and corporately. But now Jude turns his mind outward, outward to those who are in great danger because of these false teachers. They're being led astray. They're being seduced by their teachings. And Jude tells us by the imagery they're in danger of hellfire itself. And so Jude calls us individually and corporately as believers to run into the danger, having been prepared for battle and having, as Jude will eventually say in the last two verses, the promise that God is with us, the call is to rescue those who are perishing. Now, the best way, I think, to understand this, and there's a lot of discussion about these verses, they are difficult to translate. Some people argue it's just really two people or two groups in view here. I'm going to argue that it's probably three because Jude seems to like three as we go through this. But the best way, I think, to understand this is that Jude is speaking of those who are in the visible church who have been, whether they've crept in unnoticed, right? These false teachers were now among the people of God. They're in the visible church. Or those who were in the visible church when they came who are in danger of being led astray. I don't think this is ultimately about evangelism or methods of evangelism. I think it has application to that. I think you can argue that the principles here would would have an application. But I think in Jude's context, remember he's writing to believers He's talking about these false teachers, how they're coming in, seducing, leading people astray. I think what's in view here are those who are in danger of being led astray. And some of them have already left the church because of these false teachings. I think we'll see that uh, that gradual increase in these verses. He, he moves from the less dangerous to the more dangerous, and he gives strong warnings. But I think that's the best way to understand it. I think, actually, as you understand this, this is really Jude's answer to the age-old question that we find in the very beginning of humanity after Adam and Eve's fall. You remember that answer that Cain gave to the Lord after he murdered his brother Abel. The Lord said to Cain, where is your, where is Abel, your brother? Remember his question? He said, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible for Abel? He was already guilty. God wasn't asking Cain that question because he didn't know, just like when Adam and Eve sinned. He wasn't asking Adam and Eve because he didn't know where they were, that they were hiding from him. It was to awaken their conscience, and it awoke Cain's conscience. And so he cried out, I think, with great disrespect to God. He says, who am I? Am I the one who's to be responsible for my brother? Jude's answer in these verses is a resounding yes. You are responsible for your brother. You are your brother's keeper. We began with quotations from 1 John. We've studied 1 John on Wednesday nights. It's a call to love one another. And sometimes that love that we're to display for and towards one another is a love that includes this kind of action. Running into the danger under the protection of God himself. And so we're going to look at it that way, under three, because again, Jude likes threes, as does every Presbyterian pastor. And so three is what's before us. Look at the first one, have mercy. Have mercy, Jude writes in verse 22, on those who doubt. Now you see what's happening here. These are those have begun to listen to those false teachers. They've been deceived somewhat. They've pulled away, perhaps a little bit, from the church. They're not seen much around anymore, at least not consistently. They have some doubts. What about all of this? Have I wasted my whole life? Here are these teachers who seem godly enough, and yet they're saying... I can continue to live in some of my sins, which I really happen to enjoy. I'm just giving you examples of perhaps what people might say. But they're filled with some doubts, some questions. And Jude says, our responsibility to such people is to have mercy upon them. To have mercy upon them. As one writer says, we're not to follow a shoot first and ask later approach as we deal with these people. Rather, we're to approach them with compassion. The word mercy is the word compassion with a tenderness that befits those who have come to know the kindness and mercy of God towards sinners. And so these could be any number of people around us, even today in our own church, who are asking questions. Sometimes we're afraid of questions. Sometimes we think questions reveal a heart of complete unbelief. That's not true. Many of us, myself included, have had through the course of our Christian lives questions, or we would say even doubts. Is really what God is saying here true? Is is this really true? Am I supposed to give my whole life to this? Perhaps you've faced that at different points, and God in his mercy has allowed those times to pass quickly. But for some, they don't pass and what they need from brothers and sisters in the lord is compassion and mercy and so he tells them have mercy on those who doubt john gill one commentator writes this about the people to whom or of whom jude is writing that is of such who have gone astray being drawn aside who are simple who are ignorant and out of the way who sin through infirmity and the force of temptation and who are tractable and open to conviction, and whose mistakes are lesser matters of religion, or in lesser matters of religion, as also such who are convicted and wounded in their consciences for sins and mistakes, those who doubt the mercy and compassion of God. And to these compassion is to be shown by praying with them and for them with ardency and affection, instructing them in meekness, giving friendly and brotherly reproofs to them expressing on all occasions a tender concern for their good, doing them all good that can be done both for their souls and bodies. And good reason there is why compassion should be shown them because God is a God of compassion. Christ is a merciful high priest. A contrary spirit is grieving to the Holy Ghost. Saints should consider what they themselves were and what they are now. And that compassion has been shown to them and they may want it again. The emphasis is really on the heart of the gospel, isn't it? It's on the heart of the gospel, which is mercy and grace to wandering sinners. One other writer says, whenever we would fight for the faith of the gospel, we must do so with the heart of the gospel. When we're contending for the faith, we ought to contend with the heart of that faith and that gospel Such, he says, must be handled gently and with compassion. Thomas Manton, whose wonderful commentary is recommended, there are tears in his eyes when he has a rod in his hands. There are tears in his eyes when he has a rod in his hands. This is the God we serve who has drawn us with cords of love and compassion. And so to these, Jude says, who doubt who are literally, the word is wavering, we ought to have compassion. Just think for a moment, we're studying it in Sunday school. Think of Job, the compassion that God shows Job as we get to those last chapters. They're hard to read, but it's filled with compassion towards Job in his doubts and confusion that he expresses all throughout that book. Think of Jeremiah and how tenderly God dealt with Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, as he was overcome with grief because of the sins of his people, as he cursed the day of his own birth and doubted God's love to him. Think of John the Baptist imprisoned in Herod's prison, waiting his own death and asking questions through his disciples. Some take them as doubts that John was expressing. Others don't, but... John was in a place where he was wondering, and he asked the question, are you the one of Jesus? Are you the one that we're to be looking for? Are you the Messiah? And how tenderly Jesus spoke to him through his servants as well before his death. And think of the man who forever bears the name, Doubting Thomas, and how gracious and merciful Jesus was to him. He could have entered that room that night and scolded Thomas. Rightly so, for Thomas had lived with him for three and a half years, saw the ministry of Jesus, and yet Thomas doubted and would not believe until he could put his own hands into his wounds, and how compassionate and tender Jesus was of this one who perhaps was wavering a little bit, and Jesus, with mercy and compassion, draws him back, my Lord and my God, as he fell to his knees. Doubts are a real part of the Christian life. If you've never had them, you will, surely. They're just a part of the Christian life at times. There are a lot of things that cause them. But to those who seek to rescue them, to call them back, to brothers and sisters who are committed to loving their brothers and sisters, this is how Jude says we are to deal with them in such times. And it is an expression of our love. It is. It's not only engaging in battle, it is an expression of love. To sit and watch a brother and sister expressing doubts and do nothing, don't remind them of his love, don't remind them of his mercy, don't seek to reach them and draw them back, is not love. It is not love. And we are called to love one another. Now, I think what follows in verses or verse 23 really I think they do give two categories of people. I'll explain in a moment. And it's clear that they're moving from bad to worse. There's a gradation here. There's the ones we deal with who are just doubting, they're struggling, they're wavering a little bit. And then we move to those who are in a more serious situation. I think the picture is they've gone further, maybe they've left the church. Maybe you just don't see them occasionally, you just don't see them at all, but they once were part of us. I think that's really what's in view here, but there's real danger here that Jude is capturing in these next two scenarios here. And the language that he uses exemplifies that danger. And most commentators believe, no doubt, that Jude is drawing from Zechariah 3, the passage that was read earlier, Joshua the high priest, unworthy to be in his priesthood, is being accused by Satan. He's covered in these garments that are stained with sin. It's a reference to our own sin, filthy garments of sin. There's an unworthiness of him to be in the presence of God. And so you have this command to clothe him with, um, take off the filthy garments and to clothe him with righteous garments, to remove those garments. So you have this picture here of I think what Jude is talking about. And and you have this reference in Zechariah 3, is this not the brand that is plucked from the fire? I I think that is a picture of the fires of hell, of God's ultimate judgment. He has been plucked. It's a great image to keep in your minds as you think of yourself. And as I think of myself, we are those brands who have been plucked from the fires of God's judgment. I often in giving my testimony Uh, as far as God's work in my own life, speak as one who has been literally out of a family that were very few, if any, believers. I was plucked out of it. I don't know why, except it pleased the Lord to do so. But that's a picture for me. It's always been a picture for me in my mind of God's mercy to me. But here Jude uses these images from Zechariah as a picture of what's happening in his own day and how they're to deal with those people. The first group are those that he calls to save others by snatching them out of the fire. Now immediately you see the difference. These are not people just wavering. That's serious. Doubts are to be taken seriously and we ought to help each other as Jude has encouraged us. But there's an urgency here. There's a fire that's happening. The dangers of hell itself are perhaps what Jude is referencing. They've wandered far down this path with these false teachers. Perhaps it's even the false teachers he's talking about themselves. But this is a call to individuals and to the corporate church to exercise wisdom and urgency in rescuing those who find themselves nearby the very fires of hell under God's wrath and his judgment. And so he says to them, snatch them out of the fire, remove them quickly, go in and go out. This is a place to... Do first and ask questions later. This is not a place to to simply have a discussion. This is one that has an urgency of moving towards those who fall under such circumstances and providences of this life. They are in danger of perishing eternally. And so go after them. Go after them in love, with wisdom, with an urgency, and call them back. Not literally, of course. This is a spiritual picture here. This is not a literal kind of gathering a posse of people to go in and to take them by night and remove them physically. Uh, There are places for that, I suppose. This is a picture of the urgency to appeal to and to call these men and women and young people back to the Lord Jesus Christ and faith in him and away from These false teachers. That's the first picture. I think it's a separate category. And then he gives the third one, which builds on the second, so we'll deal with that here as well. Two others, he says, show mercy again, but with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. We're moving outward again. We're moving to real danger. Certainly what would be true of the third group would be true of the second group as well, and and vice versa. They're both in danger of hellfire. It's the Zechariah picture again with the replacement of the old and and defiled garments with the new garments of righteousness. It it most likely, I think in Jude's mind, and anyone reading this would have a reference to some of the Old Testament commandments in Leviticus, about how the ceremonial laws talk about how people are defiled by various bodily discharges, for instance, that make us unclean. The idea here is to be very careful as you deal with these people, because the danger here is not just for them, the hellfire of God's judgment, but for us as well, that we would be drawn into it ourselves. Some are deniers and distorters of the truth. These false teachers, for instance. So approach them with a godly fear that you not fall into the same trap. Certainly, I think as we think of this practically, we think as elders of church discipline and how we deal with those who have wandered from the faith to such a place that they refuse to repent and return to Christ this would be part of, I think, that picture of how, in a formal way, a session deals with a member who has so wandered from the truth of God that it's necessary to literally cut them off. But as we go through that process, there is always the self-awareness to be careful that we not be drawn into those same things. As I was preparing this sermon this week, I couldn't help but think of all that happened in the beginning of COVID, uh, a term and a word that most of us don't like even to mention anymore. But as we think of COVID, especially in the early days, remember celebrating and marveling at those workers and hospitals, many of them here in our own church, nurses and doctors who were required to stay in the trenches of that battle to every day move into the danger. And we we herald them as heroes, and rightly so. They were there involved, but what did they have to do? They had to be very careful. We didn't know. We didn't understand. We knew so little about this breakout, this this worldwide thing that took over the whole world. We, We just didn't know, and so they were covering themselves, externally protecting themselves. That's the sense here that we have in Jude. Be careful that you not fall into the same transgression and the same sin. I've heard several stories, several, sadly, in my ministerial life of ministers of the gospel that I knew personally that were faithful men who had a view, a moral view of of what God taught in his word with respect to how we're to live our lives. Faithful at every point when, when suddenly in God's providence, someone close to them, usually a child, has chosen to go in a path clearly contrary to God's word. And then suddenly, without warning, this man, so faithful, suddenly his view changes. But what happened there? Well, it's it's this warning. It's this warning. Show mercy, yes, but do it with fear. The idea that our garment would be stained by the flesh is the idea that we would fall ourselves into the very same belief and, and practices. And I've seen it happen too many times. It's the warning here that Jude gives and a failure to heed it. Galatians 6, I think, is perhaps the very, very best picture of how we're to proceed in these kinds of cases. Brothers, you remember these words earlier, if anyone is caught in any transgression, that's the picture, right? Falling away, falling into sin. You who are spiritual, not novices, not new believers necessarily, but the call is especially to those who are spiritual, mature, Should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So you have three pictures here. They're progressive, they move from ones that are, if you will, less serious but still important where we're to express love by showing mercy and compassion to those who struggle with wavering and doubts. And then there's an increase of urgency. There's the danger of hellfire itself. Snatch them out, as it were, by God's grace. To others who are perhaps even further along, maybe even apostatizing, who have rejected the things of Christ, to call them back but do so with fear, lest you be entangled in the same teaching and led astray and your very garments become stained by the flesh now what Jude is saying here as we close is that this is our great calling as believers it is the expression of our love to one another and every believer should be engaged in this contending this contending for the faith as we consider the author of this letter Jude the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ we might even see from his own life an example of these truths. He didn't believe in Jesus when he was on the earth. He didn't believe. uh, He didn't follow him. He was one who denied Jesus, who had doubts, and yet he came to faith by the mercies of God, no doubt through the patient pleading of those who walked with him, confronted him, rebuked him, called him to faith, and the Holy Spirit opened his heart and mind to those things, He could not see all of those years. But it is interesting that he wasn't the only one in Jesus's family. Consider his brother James. He identifies himself as the author who is the brother of James. James was also among those in Jesus's own family who mocked him, thought him to be crazy. What a fascinating thing it is that both of these brothers, originally doubters, those who did not believe came to faith in Jesus, and very interesting to me that they both end their letters in the same way. Jude here, giving this warning, encouragement to believers to be engaged in this battle, to have mercy on those who doubt, to save others by snatching them out of the fire, and others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. You ever look at James in Halienza's letter, my brothers, he says, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. It's striking to me that both of these brothers, knowing what they knew, experiencing what they experienced, calls the church to pursue those who wander from the faith to pursue them with all vigor, with all strength, with all the grace that God gives. Some of you here this morning, you may know someone, a family member, a friend, an acquaintance, have wandered from the truth. Perhaps they've apostatized, we would say, rejected out of hand the things they once believed. Perhaps they're even hostile to it. This is a call to action to you, not to sit back, to wonder but to action, to do so with fear, with trembling before the Lord and by his grace, to follow the instructions, to be discerning and wise. Jude calls us to discernment here. We have to know which is which. Are we dealing with those who have doubts or wavering just a little bit? We ought to pursue them, as Jude tells us. Or are we dealing with those who have wandered far and rejected the faith? We ought to do so wisely as Jude instructs us here as well, to make a distinction among them, between them. Remember compassion, remember the grace of God and his love to you. Remember it. And as you engage in this, as you enter into the battle, as you contend for the faith in this very practical and important way, you must remember that when you do, and when I do, we are really following the pattern of our Lord, aren't we? We are modeling our lives as we pursue others in the contending for the faith in what God has done for us. Luke chapter 15 is perhaps the most famous and perhaps most beloved chapter in that gospel account. It contains three stories, and you know what they are, don't you? We heard from one of them this morning as we were called to confession with his words when he came to his senses. We have the lost sheep, the 99 left for the one who wandered. We have the lost coin found with great joy, and we have the story of the prodigal son. It is a wonderful chapter. Read it devotionally and remember that this is what God did for us. In each case is a seeking Father and Savior, the God who pursues, who did not just sit back and watch us wallow in our sin and continue to walk down that path to our own destruction, but saw us, didn't he, as straying and doubting sheep or as a prodigal who has cast off all restraint and gone our own way. In doing what Jude calls us to do here, what he commands us to do here, We are modeling what our God has done for us in Christ. I love the words of Horatius Bonar's hymn. We sang it last Sunday evening on the occasion of Christiana's baptism. It was a reminder to all of us of who we once were. I was a wandering sheep. I did not love the fold. I did not love my shepherd's voice. I would not be controlled. I was a wayward child. I did not love my home. I did not love my father's voice. I loved afar to roam. The shepherd sought his sheep. The father sought his child. They followed me over vale and hill or deserts waste and wild. They found me nigh to death, famished and faint and lone. They bound me with the bands of love. They saved the wandering one. You see, when you live this life, Contending for the faith in this way, that's what you're doing, and you are the instrument in God's hands, and may God give you the joy of allowing you to see the effectual working of God through you in bringing the wandering ones back home. Let us contend, then, for the faith, seeking to love one another well and to deal with false teachers and those who have been seduced by their teachings Are there not those in your own life again right now who would fall into these categories, even in our own church? Pray, yes, pray fervently, but with wisdom, discernment, mercy, and love, run towards the danger, knowing that as we do, God is with you, and he is able to do far more than we could ask or imagine. Let us pray. Father, what a privilege it is that you have called us to participate in this great work that you have set before us in the call to love one another in this way. For this is what it means to contend against false teachers and false teachings, to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. This is what it means to love wayward brethren and uh, brothers and sisters in the Lord. This is what it means to Run towards the danger, trusting that you will equip us and enable us and give us the joy as we think of those, even within our own fellowship, who have wandered from Christ, that we might see them again restored because of our love and your mercy to them. We pray that you would grant us these things to the glory of your name, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.